Call of Cthulhu, Edge of Madness, is a Call of Cthulhu 7th edition actual play podcast presented by DM Fiat with me, Dale, as the Keeper of Arcane Lore. Please be advised, Call of Cthulhu is a dark game of cosmic horror. You'll hear descriptions of gore, depravity, helplessness, coercion, and other serious themes. This is not D&D. This is a game where we stare into the abyss and confront things that stare back. Call of Cthulhu, The Edge of Madness. Our campaign is drawing to a close. Today we start part one of our epic finale, Mansion of Madness. The terrible legacy of the Chapel of Contemplation is about to be fully revealed and we will soon see whether their catastrophic plans will come to pass. Whether the human race is doomed to perish, or whether you can postpone the inevitable just a little bit longer. It's September of 1923 about a month since our last session. On the east coast of the USA, temperatures are starting to fall. Winter's around the corner, but it's still a while away. Fall is just about ready to set in. Leaves on the trees are starting to turn yellow orange, and in a few weeks the ground will be papered in them. The people of Boston are starting to dress in a couple extra layers of clothing. The men walking around in thicker jackets and overcoats, the women wearing long woolen scarves and fur coats over their flapper dresses. Yeah, just like the weather now. <laughs> Even though it's summer here, our, our climate's broken. Um, I don't know where you're on. It's hot as balls 
atmosphere. Oh no, it's very cold down in Melbourne at the moment, which is really out of the ordinary. Um, so, last time we played, some very eventful things happened. Robert Chambers, the Bureau of Investigation agent, who had devoted his career to uncovering the supernatural that he'd only just become aware of, perished at the hands of Mr. Corbett's unholy child, a burgeoning avatar of Yogg-Sothoth. With Angel, it's chosen servant doing her very best to ensure that this would come to pass. In the end, thanks to the efforts of Buck and Trixie, the Avatar was destroyed and Mr. Corbett's plan ended. But it didn't stop there. An entire street of people witnessed the death of Chambers and that final desperate battle against the Avatar of Yogg-Sothoth. And in the days following this incident, agents from the Bureau of Investigation swarmed into the suburb of Lexington en masse. Journalists were forbidden to print anything about what had occurred at Mr. Corbett's house, and the residents of the street were sworn to secrecy. The official story was that a gas leak had occurred in the Corbett residence, causing an explosion that levelled the entire property. Fumes from the escaped gas reportedly caused mass hallucinations among the population, and an unfortunate agent of the Bureau, Agent Robert Chambers, perished in the explosion when he was doing a routine inspection of Mr. Corbett's property to ensure that it was up to the newly established state code. Buck Every attempt you've made to get a hold of Chambers' personal effects, find word of his next of kin, anyone who you can talk to about the fate that he met at the hands of Yogg-Sothoth has found you stonewalled by the Bureau. The clerks you've asked have told you to take it further up the chain. Those further up the chain have refused to help you at all. What's to help you with, they ask. It was an unfortunate accident. Nothing more to be said about it. And so, with Angel committed at Buck's request into Roxbury Sanitarium, and Trixie taking some time off from the Museum of Boston to go on a sabbatical to try and 
drown some of the lingering trauma in living off the grid out in the wilderness and not having to face humanity. You're left with a feeling that perhaps that was it. It all ended not with a bang, but with a whimper. Eugene Earl is dead. Chambers is gone. The paranormal club has fallen apart. Until one day in early September, when you receive a letter from Sandor, the owner of Sandor's second-hand bookstore. This, of course, was the traditional meeting place of the paranormal club, and although Sandor himself was not a member, he was a close friend of Dr. Earl, and... Well, he's a familiar face. And Buck, that's what you need at the moment. Someone, anyone, who will believe your stories, who will simply listen and smile and tell you that everything you've been through was for a purpose, and that that purpose was defending humanity from things it will never know. And so, you arrive at Sandor's second-hand bookstore just after two in the afternoon. Even at this time, the streets are already starting to empty. People don't want to be out in the windy, chilly, early fall day. Those who don't have pressing business in the city err on the side of staying in, rugging up, keeping themselves warm. And Buck, as you step into the bookstore and walk past the piles of dusty second-hand books, lining the old creaking floorboards past the packed shelves that look like they're about to collapse under the sheer weight of volume of books crammed into them and into the back room you find sandor standing at his usual spot kneeling over a reading table with a map of boston the same one that eugene earl used to use to track paranormal sightings he smiles as you enter, and you smile back. But then you notice who's standing beside him. Angel is in the room. She flashes you a mysterious smile, and your first impulse, Buck, is to reach for your gun. But she simply shakes her head, and in that lilting voice of yours says, Don't worry your head, Buck. I've seen the error of my ways. On the other side... You better have. You better have, yeah. Well, Buck's got a bullet with her name on it, just in case. <laughs> on the other side of Sandor stands... Someone you haven't seen before. A young woman, perhaps no older than 21 or 22. And as you step into the room, she looks up from the map and gives you a cautious glance. Ash, please introduce your new character. Tell us her name and what she looks like. Uh, I'm playing Vera. She is studying journalism. 
she's a spunky little thing. She's yeah, quite young. Um, she's got like a shock of shortish blonde hair. She's yeah, she's very fashionable and with the times. Uh, she she's had the word flapper used to describe her. That she doesn't use it herself. Um, she's she's a little more she's a little more masculine than you'd expect though from a girl of her time period. But the word flapper is coming into vogue, and that seems to be what it describes these days. Women who buck the norms of society, wear their hair short, wear low-cut clothing, drive and party and engage in all sorts of traditionally masculine behaviours. So, Vera, you are a journalism student in your third year. You attend Miskatonic University in Arkham, medium-sized city a couple hours away from Boston. And the reason you're here is because of the most curious death of your uncle, Robert Chambers. You weren't particularly close to your uncle. You only really saw him at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but he was generally an agreeable sort of man, and he always took interest in your life and affairs. Until one day, when you returned to your dormitory from class and found a cardboard box on the doorstep addressed to you, opened it up to find a curious collection of what was presumably your uncle's personal effects from the bureau. A leather-bound notebook, a box of bullets, no service weapon to go with it, a couple spare ties, and a fishing magazine. Included was an official, officially signed and notarised report from the bureau explaining that your uncle had perished in an accident in the line of duty and as his only identifiable next of kin they had sent his personal effects to you. Curiously the report didn't mention the exact cause of his death and obviously distressed your first impulse was to phone the bureau and find out what had happened to your uncle and nobody was able to provide a satisfactory answer. Your questions were blown off almost without any fanfare, and it was left to you to investigate your uncle's affairs on your own, pick up those missing pieces. That's what led you to Sandor's second-hand bookstore. It was an address written down in your uncle's notebook, a place that he'd apparently spent quite a lot of time at over the last couple months. But you're not sure why. He wasn't typically a reader, and you can't think of much reason why he would spend his time in a dusty old bookstore. Nonetheless, Sandor, the kindly old man who owned the bookstore, greeted you with a smile and open arms. And he asked you a question. My dear, if you stick around, you'll find out what happened to your uncle, but I must warn you, 
It's a secret you might regret having learned. Are you really sure this is what you want? No such thing as bad knowledge, I mean. <laughs> no such thing as bad knowledge. A journalist through and through. You'll find out what happened to your uncle and, in the meantime, maybe get to expose your very first scoop. Something to put to your name to use in your portfolio after graduation. And so here you are, standing in the room with Buck and Angel and now Trixie as she ambles in behind Buck. Sandor clears his throat. <sighs> I know, uh, I know with Dr. Earl gone and what happened to Chambers that there hasn't really been much of a reason to meet up anymore, but, well, I'm not a believer in leaving loose ends, and I think I found one, and I think if Chambers and Earl were still here, they'd want to make sure everything was neatly tied up. He gestures towards Vera, and he says, this is Vera, by the way. She's, uh, Chambers' niece. Yeah, hi, I, I write for the Miskatonic. Interesting. Pleasure to meet you. And likewise. Niece, you say? I hope you have some of the spunk that Chambers had. He was, uh, probably the only good government man I've ever met. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Trixie just holds out a hand. And she says, A Trixie fellow few, uh... I work down at the museum, but uh, I'm on sabbatical at the moment. And, Buck, you notice Trixie looks quite different than she usually does. Usually she's dressed in a neat, neat business casual, her hair uh, nice and done up. A professional look. Today she looks particularly wild, her hair is askew, popping out at all sorts of angles, and instead of wearing her usual business casual, she's dressed in simple khaki jeans and a vest. Same. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Apparently if you look at Angel, she's wearing a t-shirt and shorts, which yeah. is kind of odd for her. Very unusual for her. In fact, Trixie looks over and she says, oh, Angel, I... Hadn't heard you'd been released from the hospital. You look good. Oh, it was quite lovely down there. Many voices to speak. Well, uh, just so long as you don't, uh, go bad on us again. She gives a sidelong glance to Buck. What are you talking about, dear? I go so bad on us? Chambers was talking to Trixie looks over at Vera and she says, Uh, Angela, she had a bit of a bad turn when your uncle... She trails off and... Well, I didn't think she'd be well enough to be released by now, but... I mean, she looks normal enough and the doctors must have decided she was, uh, fit to return, so... Well, it's no use dwelling on the past. Then, uh, okay. And you just see Vera like scribbling in a little notebook. <laughs> Is it the same one that Chambers used to carry around? No, it's her, her own notebook. It's got the Miskatonic University logo stamped on the black cover. Actually, it doesn't. 
it's just a plain one. Yeah, no, she she wants people to think she's a real journalist. I identify yeah. with that. When I was a journalism student, I had the same problem. <laughs> um, so Sandor leans forwards over the map and clasps his hands together, and he says, "Well, I didn't want to get you all together again so soon, and." If it were up to me, I would have allowed poor Angel to have more time to recover, but, well... Oh, darling, I'm quite fine. I certainly hope you are. I don't want to put any more stress on you than you can handle. There's... Stress, darling. I don't need stress. I just need to live. He nods, and he says, well, let's uh, settle this loose end, and... Then we can all go back to living, and, uh, if we never have to see each other's faces again, I'll count that as a blessing. But I love your, I love your face. <laughs> well, of course, says Sandor. I like to imagine that I aged gracefully, but, well... Oh, as gracefully as the wind, my friend. Let's just hope we can get our lives back on track once this is over. So, there's a woman, goes by the name of... Sarah Keatling lives up in Belmont, a couple minutes away from MIT. Uh, well, she must have seen one of Earl's old ads for the Paranormal Club. Uh, didn't realize that uh, we don't really exist anymore. And she contacted me. Had a case for me. And, uh, well, I was just about ready to turn her away, say, give her the old, sorry, ma'am, you'll have to find someone else routine, but, uh, well, she, uh, mentioned the Chapel of Contemplation. He lets his words linger for a moment. Her brother, Andrew, prominent socialite in that part of town, appears to have gone missing. Now... She said the police are looking into it, but they haven't turned up any leads. She did a bit of reading of her own, discovered the Chapel of Contemplation listed in some old books, and discovered the reputation that goes along with them. She started to get quite worried, and said she would like the case to be looked into by uh, people who know about these sorts of things. He says, Now, I understand. After what happened to Chambers, you're probably not too willing to run headlong into horror yet again, but I think we'd be doing a great honor to Earl and Chambers' memories if we could put this to rest once and for all. He turns to Vera, and he says, I'm well aware, ma'am, that everything I've just said is probably gibberish to you, but I promise, stick with these three, and well, you'll have a good idea what happened to your uncle soon enough, but I have to ask again. I wouldn't be able to sleep with the fact that I didn't warn you. So... Are you absolutely sure this is what you want to do? Vera looks him dead in the eyes and says, I'm sure. Okay. I won't ask you a third time. 
says Sandor. He rifles through a stack of papers on the table in front of him and pulls out a little slip of parchment. There's an address written on it. He leans over and hands it to Buck. He says, uh, this is uh, Miss Keatling's address. I uh, told her you'd be around uh, sometime this afternoon. Uh, she'll be able to fill you in about her brother's disappearance. Here peeks over Buck's shoulder and writes down the address. Yep, writes it down. And At this point, Sandor notices the camera hanging around Vera's neck. He smiles and he points and he says, Oh, for your uncle's sake... Uh, Make sure you don't let that out of your sight. I think there are a few things that your uncle would appreciate you bringing to light. Oh, don't worry. It's always by my side. Okay, says Sandor. He starts busying himself, taking books out of a pile on the floor next to him and sliding them into the shelf. I'll be here if you need me, but, well... Hopefully we can get this over and done with nice and quickly and move on with our lives. I wish you the very best of luck, and it's my earnest hope that we all come out of this in one piece. Oh, uh, he says, before I forget, uh, Dr. Rural's automobile... After he died, uh, nobody came to collect it, so uh, I've been taking care of it, and uh, if you'd like to use it, I'm sure his spirit wouldn't mind. Uh, it's in the parking lot outside. I can't think of it going to a better use than uh, hunting ghosts and ghoulies. Here's the key, he says, reaching into his pocket, handing you a set of keys, and then he nods. Stay on your guard. Be very careful. I've got a feeling we're entering the end game here, and... Well, who knows what we're up against. Sorry, uh, Mr... Sandor, he says. No, 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 the southern fella. Oh, Buck. Oh, me? Uh, they call me Buck. Buck, sure. Uh, ghosts and goalies? You haven't been informed of anything, have you? I'm fresh off the cab. Alright, well, I'll explain this for you. She pulls out the cards, um, and she's like, No, come sit down with me. Uh, no, no, no I'm okay with just a, just a report, uh... I'll, I'll tell you on the exist. way. They exist, just, just, they exist, they are weird, they are... haunting me, and... <laughs> Yeah, not fun. Trixie sm- uh, Okay, then. Trixie smiles, and she says, uh, Angel was like that before we ran into any of those things, but... Well, you'll see soon enough. So, all right. you will make your way out of the bookstore into the parking, parking lot where Dr. Earl's black Model T waits. There's a bit of dust on the bodywork, but for the most part, Sandor's done a decent job of taking care of it. Buck unlocks the door and slides into the driver's seat. Trixie and Angel sit in the back while Vera slides into the passenger side, right next to Buck. 
And then you start the engine, guide the car out of the parking lot and out onto the city streets. The Keatling residence is a large townhouse located in the suburb of Belmont. It's only a few miles out of downtown Boston. It only takes you about 15 minutes to get there. So you don't have to rush. The townhouse is grand and at one point in time it looks like the sort of residence that would have been home to a family of old money with a cadre of servants waiting at their every move. But that was some time ago. The townhouse now looks worn down, in disrepair. The lattice on the front is broken at several points. The front windows are dusty and you can see a couple of shingles missing off the roof above. It's in stark contrast to the rest of the houses on this street that dwarf this one in magnificence. You step up onto the patio in front of the front door and exchange glances. You've got to be ready for anything. <laughs> Who's ready to knock on the door? Angel just straight up goes up there and just knocks on it. Yep. Like, so, so Angel's the first, walks up to the front door, grabs the knocker and knocks three times, calling out, Darling, we're here. And almost instantaneously... The doorknob turns and the door slides open, revealing a somewhat plain-looking woman in her mid-thirties with thin blonde hair. There's a look of obvious concern written on her face and there are lines under her eyes from lack of sleep. She bites her lip as she looks at each of you in turn and she says, Oh, uh... The, the, the Paranormal Club? Ah, uh, yes, darling. That would be us. Oh, uh, Please, please, come in. She gestures for you to enter the home, and once you're into the entrance hall, she shuts the door behind her, behind you all. She leads you through the dusty entrance hall into a small sitting room, gestures for you to take seats around the wooden table. And then as you sit down one by one, she looks from left to right. Ah, oh, uh, tea? Uh, anything to eat? Uh, I'll have a chamomile tea, my dear. Okay, uh, she looks at the rest of you. Uh, no, thank you, man. I'm fine. Uh, just a glass. Okay, okay. Trixie shakes her head and she says, Oh, hmm, I don't think I have the constitution for anything hard after living off the land for a couple of weeks. Miss Keatling nods. She hurries away into the kitchen. She returns a few minutes later, hands Angel a small white porcelain teacup and Buck a tall glass containing some sort of alcohol. You can't quite identify what it is, Buck. It's either beer or whiskey, and it smells like a mixture of the two. I hope you don't mind, says Miss Keatling. I'm not much of a drinker. I pulled that out of my brother's private stash, and, well, he has some eccentric friends. 
There wasn't a label on the bottle, but uh, I'm sure it's, uh... I'm sure it hasn't gone bad or anything. All works the same once it's down. You take a sip of it, Buck, and it goes down all right. Tastes a little bit earthy, but... Aside from that, it's... Still good. And it's... Not... This time grown by a cultist maniac who wishes to kill you. So that's a comfort at least. Miss Keatling takes a seat across from the table, across on the other side of the table from you. And then she sighs, leans forwards and buries her forehead in her hand. She says, so I suppose you want to know about Andrew, right? Just start at the beginning. Okay, she says. Well, Andrew's always been a quiet, responsible man. At least until lately. A few months ago, he began associating with a group of young artists. And before long, he was spending much more time with them than he was at home. At first, what I... kind of artists? Oh, some sort of bohemian collective, ma'am. She says, uh, they might have been university students, or, or they might have been just bohemians from in the city. Either way, it's not the type of per not the type of crowd my brother would typically associate with. Well, look, at first, I thought little of it. I expected he would lose interest in them and settle back into his normal lifestyle. But as time went on, he became more and more entrenched in their little community. He spent more and more time away from home. And, well, I I'm honest, I began to suspect he'd fallen in with a bad crowd. I, I think he's been writing some very large checks made out to people I, I don't know. She frowns. I... I confronted him about this, and he grew angry, and he refused to discuss it. Later, he apologized to me, and he explained that the money had been spent on some paintings with which he was going to decorate his study. When he brought the three paintings home, that's when my suspicions started to grow. They were all by and unknown, and they certainly did not warrant the amount of money he'd spent on them. They were quite atrocious, and not only were they executed by a complete unknown, the subject matter is simply ghastly, hardly the sort of thing you would want seen hanging in your home or even in a gallery. We had an argument about it, but... Andrew... Sorry, what, what, kind of, what kind of images are we talking about here? She says, oh, uh, they're upstairs in Andrew's study, but, well, there's something about them. It's not that they're inherently disturbing. Well, one of them is, at least, but the others, it's, there's a strange quality to them. It could just be they're just plain not very good, but when I set eyes on them, I knew I just didn't like them. And we had an argument about it, but Andrew was vehement about their quality. He told me that they'd been painted by Josephine Garcetti, 
an heiress of the Chapel of Contemplation, and that one day she would be recognized as a modern-day master, and the three paintings would be worth a small fortune. Then after that, a few days later, he went out one evening, and he never returned. That was two weeks ago now. Do you mind if I take a look at those paintings in a little bit? Uh, sure. Uh, he studies just upstairs, first or on the left, but... Do you think they'll help? I... Well, the police have already been in there. Uh, there's a detective... Oh, blue sense. She nods and she says, Well, I suppose it couldn't hurt. Maybe you'll find something the police missed. Uh, there's a detective, Patrick Devlin. He's the one in charge of the case. But I haven't heard of him... I haven't heard from him in about a week now. I'm not entirely sure he's doing a proper job. I'll, I'll take yeah, a look in a minute. We should definitely touch base with him at some point today. She nods. She says, uh, well, do you know anything about the Scarcetti? She thinks for a moment, bites her bottom lip, and she says, Well, I never met the woman, and... Well... If I'm honest, I was surprised that my brother was spending all this time with a woman in the first place. He's... She leans forwards, lowers her voice, looks from left and right. Well, don't go spreading it around, but my brother's a little queer, if you know what I mean. She swallows, and then she says, I think he said he met her at the Boston Museum of Fine Art. He's actually quite well known down there. He gives a donation to the museum once a month, and so his name carries a lot of weight over there. It's possible she saw him at one of those monthly gatherings. Oh, anyway, she says, she stands up. Trixie just nods and says, I haven't been there in a month, but, well, if we want to head to the museum, I'm sure my name will get us in. Come to think of it. She thinks for a moment, curls up her lip, and she says, I haven't heard of this Andrew Keatling, but I'm not really in charge of the art exhibit. I, I'm in charge of the archaeological exhibits, and I've spent most of my time there ogling to get, well, an exhibit on the supernatural started, but that's neither here nor there. Needless to say, I know a few people at the museum we can talk to. Miss Caitling stands up and she says, well, hopefully that will be enlightening to you, but please, uh, follow me, I'll take you up to Andrew's study. Finish your tea and your whiskey, and then you rise out of your chairs, and the woman leads you upstairs and into Andrew's study. Andrew's small study is dominated by three large, expensively framed paintings. They are clearly the focus of interest in the room. One of the paintings hangs above the desk, while another is suspended from the edge of a bookshelf, covering most of the books beneath. The third painting hangs on the wall opposite the bookshelf. Each of the three paintings is identified by a small silver plaque on the frame, engraved with the title of the work. 
Well, uh, there they are, says Sarah. She says, ah, I'll wait outside. I I'd rather not linger in the room with these ghastly things, but feel free to take a look at anything you like in here. The police did a comb over of the room, but maybe they missed something. And then she turns, exits the study, and shuts the door, leaving you alone. Vera immediately moves to the nearest painting. Yes. So, Vera, you move to the first painting, the one that hangs above the desk. According to the little silver placard, this one is entitled The Dweller in the Void. This painting depicts a large humanoid figure suspended in a distorted field of colour. The figure is thin, malformed, its features murky. It appears mummified, decayed. Your eye is irresistibly drawn to the hanging figure. As you begin to pick out the details in the painting, it becomes obvious that the thing you're looking at is composed of twisted and tortured faces. I'd like you to make a power check, please, Vera. Uh, sure. In a moment, I'm also going to be taking a photo of it. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. Roll Okay, roll 100 sorry. Um, Sometimes it takes a while. Fail by nine. I'm going to re-roll. Yep, go ahead. Um, pass. Pass. For a brief second, you think you see your own face among the tortured faces composing the figure. And you feel your heart skip a beat. But then you blink and you peer straight back at the painting and you realize it's not your face. It's just a young woman who looks remarkably like yourself in superficial ways. Same hair color, same eye color, but otherwise completely different. That is eerie. Rep and yeah, she's gonna take a photo. You take a step back, grab your camera and pull it up Sticking your eye in the viewfinder. Go ahead, make a photography check for me. Uh, fail, gonna roll again. Roll again. Oh, fail again. Yeah. Fill student. The room is quite dim. There's only a single window, and even with this one window looking out onto the street, there's not a lot of light in the room. You snap a couple of shots of the painting to be sure, but you're not confident it's going to show up well in the resulting photograph. Meanwhile, Buck, would you like to approach one of the other paintings? Uh, yeah, he'll approach the second one. Yeah. So, Buck, you head over to the bookshelf. It's filled with books on art history, and there's another painting suspended from the edge of it, covering up most of the books. The title plate reads, Sylvan Knight. And this painting depicts a beautiful, blonde-headed woman sprawled nude across a great rough-hewn stone. In the dark background, you can see pine trees silhouetted against the sky. Above the treetops, seemingly forming from the very air, is a dark, swirling mass, identity unknown. Something is very disturbing about the woman's sultry expression, 
and her eyes seem to follow you as you step closer to the painting and then further away again. Please make a sanity check. So while you're standing, so for lose for passing, you lose only one sand point, and you shake your head. This is no time to be getting scared about a painting. You've seen things much worse than this. You lift up the painting and shift it aside so you can look at the bookshelf, look at the books underneath. The majority of them appear to be art history books, but there's a handful on the occult, and a couple of the shelves are taken up not by books, but a series of objects d'art, knickknacks. If you'd like to search the shelf, you may go ahead and make a spot hidden check. Try again. Uh, still a fail. Where still a fail. Okay, you won't find everything, but you will find something. Your quick investigation of the bookshelf turns up some travel guides, some books on geography, a few tracks on shipbuilding. You notice a few slips of paper sticking out between the pages of a volume on Raphaelite plates. Pressed between pages 22 and 23 of this book are several letters written in a woman's hand. Briefly passing your gaze over them, you realise that most of them are love notes, poems and sweet nothing scribbled on paper. There is one that appears to be of immediate interest to your investigation. reads, My darling Andrew, please meet me at the Sailors Club tonight at 11. Do not fail. I really must speak to you. An important time for both of us draws near. Love. JG. There's no date on any of the notes, but this one at least must be reasonably old as the ink has already started to fade in places. Meanwhile, Angel, do you approach the third painting? You know what? I do. So you approach the third ba painting. The one hanging on the wall opposite the bookshelf. The one that has a tiny little wooden display table underneath it with a single drawer. It is entitled The Watching. This painting shows a solitary building, a large mansion somewhere on the coast. As you view the painting, you notice tiny red points of light in each of the building's numerous windows and cracks. Increasingly, as you continue to look at the painting, these red points become the most significant feature. Please make a power check, Angel.
It's a fail. Go ahead. Is this a medium success? Medium success. You feel you feel strangely compelled to draw closer to the painting, to look at these red dots in the darkness, but you shake your head and you're able to dispel the feeling. Do you wish to pull away, or would you like to look deeper? Ignore the voice in your head telling you to pull away and move closer to the painting. Now you no longer see a building, but the multi-orbed visage of some titanic being, each red dot of light another staring, searching eye, and all of them looking directly at you. Make a sand check, please. It's a fail. That is a loss of 1d3 sen. What are you on now? Uh, hallucinogens. Oh. <laughs> um, so, Angel, for just a moment, you see the, you see a tiny pinprick of blackness in the center of one of the eyes, a pupil. It's gazing off to the side, but it shifts, looks right into your own eye, and you, your mouth opens. You let out a little scream, ah! as you jump back from the painting. When you look back at it, you can no longer see this titanic being. It's just a mansion on the coast once again. Vera, you see Angel jump away from one of the paintings while Buck removes one from its spot on the bookshelf and begins searching through the books. You should probably take photos of the other two while you've got a chance. Oh, you, you okay there? Um, hmm. I'll get back to you on that one. Trixie just smiles, shakes her head, and she says, Oh, we've all been through so much. Even Angel's starting to have her mind play tricks on her. Right, uh, let's get back to that. And then she's going to go take some photos, and then after that she's going to go back to the frame of the first one. Yep, so go ahead, make a photography check. That's a pass. This time you're extra careful. You pick up one of the paintings, hang it up on a hook on the wall directly opposite the, the window. And then you stand in front of it, raise the camera to your eye, peer through the viewfinder and press the button. Click, click. Then do the same for the second picture. Click, click. I'd like you to make a power check for me, please, Vera. Missed by six. I'll re-roll. Yep, go ahead. <laughs> That's a fail. That's a fail. As you snap the second picture and lower the camera, you audibly gasp. <gasps> the, 
the door to the study that was shut only a moment ago is now open and silhouetted in the dimly lit hallway is an extremely tall figure wearing what appears to be a wide-brimmed hat and an overcoat. You look over your shoulder at the others to get their attention, but then, when you turn around once more, the door is closed, the figure is gone. Make a sanity check for me, Vera. Uh, pass. Pass. That is a sanity loss of one. No worries. Oh, okay, uh, you guys are rubbing off me real fast. Yeah, trust me, that's not me. Trixie frowns. Did-did-did yeah. you see something? In the painting, uh, not or...? A, not in the painting, uh... Yeah, don't worry about it. Trixie nods. She moves over to Buck, stares down at the note in his hand, and she says, Well, uh, I wonder if I'm right in thinking those initials, J.G., stand for Josephine Garcetti. Yeah, it'd be strange if it wasn't. At this point, you hear the sound of the door opening. You whirl around as Sarah Keatling shuffles into the room, doing her very best to not look at any of the paintings. Her gaze fixates directly on you. She notices the scrap of paper you're holding in your hand, and she frowns, and she says, Oh! Oh, did you find something? We'll call it a clue for now. A clue, she says, shuffles over and reads it over your shoulder. She says, so it's Vera. So it's Vera. Vera gets to read it as well. Sarah shakes her head. The Sailor's Club? I've never heard of such a place. And, what? These, these are love letters. This is clearly some kind of rendezvous. And, oh, I've already told you what my brother's relations are like with the opposite sex. I, either this is a fake, or this woman's got some sort of leverage on my brother, and... She trails off. Oh, oh, I'm starting to get a very bad feeling that he's in danger. Probably. Yeah, I think Plus, I need some shit, and, uh, I need to go do something. She's going to go find drugs. Go find drugs. She needs drugs. Yeah, she needs drugs. So, Angel creeps out of the room. I'd like Angel to go ahead and make either a spot hidden or an occult check for me. Occult? Uh, yep. As Sarah reaches into her breast pocket... I'll get to you in a moment. Sarah reaches into her breast pocket and she says, Oh, I, I found this downstairs. I thought you might find some use for it she hands you a uh, she hands you what you quickly see is a photograph of her missing brother it shows a thin man in his early 30s with regular features and sandy hair in contrast to his rather plain looking sister he's quite a handsome looking man he would definitely be a lady killer vera thinks if he didn't prefer 
the other six. Ain't that a shame. Well, says Sarah, I'm not sure there's much here in his study, so... Uh, any idea where... Any idea where he'll investigate first? If you don't mind us taking a, uh, that picture with us, we might go down to the bar first. The bar, the bar. Oh, you mean the Sailor's Club. Well, I don't rightly know where that is, and... Well, she leans in and whispers, I think it sounds like one of those speakeasies. Buck just chuckles to himself. Now don't you worry about that, man. I know my way around the speakeasies. Well, I'm Kira sure... does her best impression of looking horrified. I'm sure you do, laugh, laughs Sarah. And then she says, but, well, not just anyone on the street knows where you can find a place like that. You'd have to speak to someone who uh, knows about those things. And, well, if you said you mentioned earlier, you might pay a visit to Sergeant Devlin. Maybe he right, might rightly know. Yeah, that would make more sense. Man, I shouldn't have had that, uh, that drink before. <laughs> Told my senses a bit. She says, uh, otherwise, uh, I know Andrew's got some connections at the museum, so maybe if you ask around there, someone might know something about this Josephine Garcetti, at least. Andrew said she's a, an up-and-coming artist, so maybe someone down that way would at least have heard of her. It's at this point that Angel stumbles back into the room. Her eyes are wide and bloodshot and she's looking from left to right, sniffing. <laughs> Angel, you wandered into the upstairs bathroom and taking a curious peek inside the medicine cabinet, you found a small baggie of cocaine. Cocaine, of course, in the 1920s, quite commonly used as a form of pain relief, sometimes even as cough or flu medicine. Some people believe it cures headaches. But it was enough for you. You wasted no time getting a line out on the bathroom counter and snorting it up and then feeling your the rush begin to hit your brain. You slip the rest of the baggie into your pocket and returns to the others. You may increase your... You may do your next sand check with advantage. <laughs> Sarah Keatling leads you out of the study, back downstairs into the sparsely furnished entrance hall. She thanks you for taking a look, taking an interest in her case, and as she shows you back out into the windy outdoors, she smiles, a sincerely hopeful smile, and she says, Please, please do what, whatever you can to, to find him. I've read about this, this chapel of contemplation, and I don't rightly like any of the things I read. 
trust me, the uh, reality is much, much worse. We'll find it, don't you worry. She nods and then pulls the door shut, leaving you to make your way down the cobblestone driveway back towards Dr. Earl's Model T. So, how would you like to handle this investigation? You have a number of leads. There's detective... There's the detective who's looking into the case. Detective Patrick Devlin. There's the Sailors Club, a speakeasy, but you don't know where that is, and you'd have to either find some unsavory characters to tell you, or just ask around at random, hoping eventually you hit home and get someone to tell you what you need. Or you can perhaps head to... The Boston Museum of Fine Arts. See if anyone's heard of Josephine Garcetti. That's probably a good idea to go to the detective first. I mean, yep. it's clearly going to have um, organised a lot of information we could use. Uh, Most definitely. Well, would you like to... Would you like to go together or as a group? Trixie looks over at Angel in the back seat and she says, uh, Angel, if... If you'd rather go to the museum, I can call us a taxi. It's not far from here. Darling! Hi! How are you? Yeah, let's go there! <laughs> Trixie pushes open the back door of the Model T, climbs out as Angel reaches out, grabs her wrist, and follows her out of the car. Trixie looks over her shoulder and she says, uh, Let's meet up uh, back at Sandor's bookstore uh, in two hours or so and we'll, we'll, we'll go over what we've learned. See where we can go from there. Yeah, sounds like a great <laughs> idea. You nod as... You behave now. <laughs> I'm on coke. Of course I'll behave. Oh dear, says Trixie. You didn't, did you, Angel? Oh, you did. And then she sighs, rolls her eyes as she grabs Angel by the shoulder and guides her. That is. <laughs> you might have a fair point there. As she guides Angel like a mother guiding a child out of the front yard onto the street. Sticks out her thumb to hail a taxi. Vera, are you happy to go with Buck? Yeah, absolutely. Buck nods as he winds up the window, turns the key in the ignition, and you watch as Angel and Trixie disappear, swallowed up by the brick wall of a building at the end of the street. I, uh... Quite a character, that one. Yeah, I was hoping to get you alone for a minute. Uh, oh? You might want to keep an eye on her. She's a, a good part of the reason why your uncle's dead. Uh, what, do, what do you mean? I'm not sure how to explain it. Uh, there's a gigantic monster. Uh, tore up an entire street. <laughs> sorry, sorry, what? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's hard to believe, I know, but it's the truth. Uh, yeah, Miss Angel tried to tried to stem me through the heart. Uh, 
nearly sent us all to our graves. Uh, definitely keep an eye on her. Uh, huh. And Vera just sort of scribbles. <laughs> they're all mad. Yeah, just, just <laughs> writes. Her, just writes. They are all possibly mad. Three question marks. <laughs> and then underlines it. <laughs> 20 minutes later, you're stepping through the front doors of the 12th Precinct Police Station. The waiting area is decorated in a bleak wooden, in bleak wooden panelling filled with well-worn leather-backed chairs. There's not a lot of people in the waiting room today. There's... A rather stocky-looking man wearing dirt and mud-splutted overalls, clutching a wood-cutting hatchet in his right hand as he leans back in a chair, resting his muddy boots on the back of the chair in front of him. As you walk past him, you can't help but notice a stain on the blade of his axe that looks suspiciously like blood. An overworked-looking secretary with mousy brown hair looks up at you as you approach. She smiles and she says, Oh, hello? Uh, reporting a crime? Or are you here to get our latest community watch guide? Hi, I, I'm, I'm with the Scatonic, actually. I was hoping I could speak to... Uh, Buck, did you know uh, his name? A Patrick uh, yeah, Devlin. Uh, Patrick Devlin. I believe he's a detective here at your precinct. The woman looks up from the typewriter. Her fingers are gliding across. And she says, Oh, you're a writer. You're working on a story or something? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I am, actually. Uh, looking into the uh, uh, strange, strange death. Well... Go ahead and make a persuade check for me, please, Vera. Um, and a persuade is 45. So that's definitely not a pass. Let me roll it again. Pass. Pass. She nods. Well, uh, Detective Devlin's been in the news quite recently, of course. Uh, I was expecting the questions to have uh, run their course by now, but uh, I suppose... With what he's done, there'll be people wanting to speak to him for quite some time yet. Um, head through the door behind me, and uh, he's at the desk at the very back of the room. Uh, you'll see his nameplate there. You won't be able to miss him. She Thank flashes you, you a smile and winks. Best of luck with your story, dear. <laughs> Thank you. You step through the door behind her into the main office of the police station. At least ten desks are scattered across this large open room, half of them manned by tired-looking, uniformed beat cops, either rifling through folders or scribbling down their reports on stacks of paper. You make your way to the desk at the very back of the room, and sure enough, the nameplate reads Detective Sergeant Patrick Devlin. He's a harried-looking officer in his mid-40s. 
A big man with a doughy-looking face and thinning hair, his forehead dotted by small beads of sweat that glimmer in the light of the little lamp on the desk in front of him. He's wearing a plain light-coloured suit. It seems to be roughly one size too small for his bulky frame. As you approach, he shifts in his chair and leans over the desk to greet you. And I'd like you both to make spot hidden checks, please. Uh, no, that's a fail. To fail. Uh, that is a extra critical success. Mm, so Vera doesn't notice, but Buck, who's always alert now, notices that as Sergeant Devlin shifts forwards in his chair, his left he pulls his left sleeve forward to cover a thick bandage wrapped around his wrist. He looks at you, uh, narrows his eyes. Ah, another journalist. Fine, fine, look, I'll answer this whatever questions you have, but I'm not sure what I can tell you that I haven't already told the globe. Don't worry, this, this won't take too long. Okay, sure. He holds out a beefy hand. I'm, uh, Sergeant Patrick Devlin. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, Vera takes it and gives quite a firm handshake. Devlin yawns, leans back in his chair, creaks under his considerable weight, and he says, Okay, so, uh, what can I do for you? Well, first of all, what can you tell me about the case? Just the broad strokes. Just to make sure everything lines up. Well, what case you working on? Uh, the, uh, death of Robert Chambers, actually. Robert Chambers? He thinks for a moment, then he whistles. Oh, yeah, about a month ago. Yeah, I, uh... Me and some other folks looked into that one, but, uh... Well, I'm not rightly sure I can tell you. Uh, we were sworn to secrecy. Uh, some feds came from, uh, up the coast and, uh... Told us that under no circumstances were we to mention anything involved with the case, and he trails off. Uh, well, what, what, I, I, really nothing you can mention about the case at all. How would you like to push it? Would you like to use a persuade role, or would you like to charm him, or bribe him? He crosses his arms, a bead of sweat runs down his forehead. You've clearly taken him by surprise, but he shakes his head and says, um, Yep. Uh, using, uh, like, I'm just using psychology, actually, to yeah. uh, see if I can get some insight into what's going on. Yeah, go ahead. Make, uh, a, psych might be stressed about that. make a psychology um, check. shakes his head. I, uh, look, I don't want to lose my job, alright? As he says this, there's a look of apprehension on his face, and you notice he seems to unconsciously rub his wrist with his right hand, touching 
where the bandage is under his sleeve. Losing his job seems to be the least of his problems. It's clear that there's something weighing on his mind, and he wants to talk about it, but he's been ordered not to. Alright, well, uh, I understand, just, uh, I wonder if this, uh, I, I get a feeling this is a little personal for you, uh, by the way, how'd you get the, uh, what's with the bandage? What? Oh, oh, this! He pulls back his arm, looks at the bandage, he says, Well, uh, actually, that's uh, sort of related. Oh? Go ahead and make for me a persuade check, and you may make it with advantage. Um, so how did it remind me how advantage So you roll again? twice, take the lowest number that you roll. Right, um, I'm gonna push it anyway. All fails. All fails. Buck, would you like to try something? Yeah, uh, Buck is going to produce his little flask from uh, from in his jacket and um, proffer it to the detective. Now that looks like it's causing you a fair amount of pain. Would you like to uh, wet your whistle a little bit? I'd like you, Buck, to go ahead and make a charm check for me. Critical success. Devlin opens his mouth to say something and he brushes his hand in the air and he says, Ah, what the hell? I ain't gonna bust myself for bootlegging now. Alright, sure, sure. He leans forwards, grabs your hip flask and unscrews the lid, takes a sip and then hands it back to you. And he says, Alright, look. This is strictly off the record, okay? No writing any of this down. He points his finger at Vera. Oh, you got it. Feds had us looking into a, a chapel of contemplation. Some sort of cult, as I understand it. And, well, we found a group connected with them, all right? And me and my... Me and a few of my... Uh, colleagues conducted a raid on the premises two weeks ago. The raid itself was reported by the Globe. If you head over to their offices, they may have one of the papers from two weeks ago that you can take a look at. But, uh, we ended up apprehending most of the members of the group. They were hiding out in a house in the suburbs. But the leader of the cult, a woman by the name of uh, Josephine Garcetti, uh, escaped. I believe she's hiding out somewhere in the greater Boston area. But, well, the feds stepped in, said we'd done our part and that they'd take it from here. Hey, look, he says, if you're interested, uh, I've actually got some of the crime scene photos. He slides open the drawer on the desk, pulls out six grainy photographs and lays them out in a line on the desk. They're not for the faint-hearted. 
Along with the grisly images, there are captions detailing each victim's name, where the body was found, and technical details are noted along the sides of each photo, sketched with a pencil. All of them read the same, dagger wound to throat, followed by post-mortem mutilation by human bites. All of the victims appear to be young men. Their faces seem to have been mutilated beyond recognition, covered in bite marks. Vera, like, is making her best effort to look unfazed. So, Buck, you are fine. You've seen worse than this. No sand check required. But, Vera, I'd like you to make a sand check, please. Um, pass. Pass. So that is a loss of 1d3 sand. You've never seen... Nice. Never seen crime photos like this, not up close. Lost one. Lost one. Uh, like I said, says Devlin, shaking his head, they ain't pretty. Do any of the names match up with uh, uh, Andrew Keatling? Andrew Keatling's name is not among the victims, and you thank God for that. In this moment. But it doesn't take you long to make the logical leap that Andrew Keatling is in danger. Uh, Buck leans forward on the desk um, and looks directly uh, into Devlin's eyes. Now, this Josephine, what can you tell us about her? And remember, this is very important. I'd like Buck to go ahead and make either an appearance or persuade check for me. Can I possibly use an intimidate? Oh yeah, go ahead, yeah. Say, you lean in and you say, I need you to tell me everything about this Josephine Garcetti or someone else is going to die soon. a fail. Push? I did. <laughs> oh, you did? Would, would you like to spend luck? Oh, that's a lot of luck. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Devlin just shakes his head and he says, I... Look, I advise you just stick your nose out of it. Let the feds deal with it. They'll catch her before all is said and done. Unless... He looks towards Vera. He says, Ma'am, I have your word that none of this is going to be published. You got it. I'd like you to make an appearance check, please, Vera. Oopsies, uh, wrong, wrong guest. Um, appearance. Oh, it's characteristic. My, it's my yep. characteristic, right? Yeah, that's a pass. He looks you up and down, you notice his eyes lingering for quite a moment on your thighs. And then he looks up into your face and he says, Well, I hate to turn away a pretty face empty-handed, but... Well, feds took most of the evidence we got from the raid, but... Well, there's one thing in particular 
that they haven't got to yet, and, uh... Well, I'll allow you to duck in and out of the evidence room so long as you don't take anything and don't mention to anyone that I let you in there. Oh, you're a saint. Thank you so much. He gestures. I'll give you another swig on the way out. He nods as he, as he directs you to a single metal door over in the corner of the room, and then he winks. He says, "Remember, off the record." Uh, Buck's gonna lean over to um, Vera once we're kind of out of the earshot. You brought your camera, right? Beards winks at him. <laughs> oh, you are just like your uncle. Making sure he's out of earshot as you say that. You make your way to the metal door, reach down, push it open, and enter the pitch black evidence room. Buck, you fumble around for a moment until you feel a chain dangling from the roof. You grab it and pull it, and ting, ding, 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 fluorescent light flickers a couple times and bathes the room in a harsh white glow. The room is comprised of several shelves filled with filing cabinets and cardboard boxes of evidence. He told you you're free to take a look, but he didn't tell you exactly where the stuff on the Keatling case is found. So... Go ahead and make a library use check. What? My library use is 43. Uh, I'll roll again. <laughs> wow, exactly a pass. Exactly a pass. Okay, so as Buck... As Buck just stands with a bemused look on his face, Vera, in her element begins sorting through the filing cabinets and cardboard boxes, reading the handwriting that's scrawled on every little plastic label, until finally you find the word Keatling. You grab the cardboard box and slide it out. There's not much inside. Two books. A blue book with no title on the cover, and a little black notebook, almost identical to the one that you carry around with you, Vera. Yeah, definitely, um, having a look at the notebook. You beckon Buck over and reach in to the bag, reach into the box, grab out the notebook, press it down on a nearby table and begin to read. Excerpts from a diary. Only the entries with direct interest in the investigation are here as you flick through the book. June 30th, 1916. Dear diary, I don't know how to write about it, but my dreams have been so strong the last few nights that I'm actually scared. It seems that I was in a big cave, all filled with glowing lights. And then I heard a voice, a big voice, but it made noise only in my head. Like someone else's thoughts were there, racing around inside my skull. I can almost still hear it whispering to me, even as I write this. For some reason I'm afraid, but it was, after all, only a dream. 
August 28th, 1916. Dear diary, I keep having dreams about the voice. It says it wants to teach me things, but somehow it makes me be afraid. I want to tell mother about it, but somehow I feel she wouldn't understand. As winter arrives, entries referring to the dream voice become more common, but Josephine remains undecided about listening to the mysterious voice. All her diary entries, however, adopt a darker tone. January 28th, 1917. A dear diary, I tell you I cannot attend this house. The walls are pounding in on me. I cannot get the dreams about the voice out of my head, and even now I can see that strange cave. I hate my mother, and I wish I could pass from this house into the warm darkness of the ground. The entries retain this tone throughout the winter and spring of 1917. Pages at a time are free of words but are covered with intricate, convoluted cross-hatchings. At first glance, the patterns only show a good sense of texture, but at times, faces seem to resolve themselves out of the dense layers of crossed lines. June 29th, 1917. The teachers at school seem so amazed by the things I draw. Some of them say I have real talent and should go to school somewhere to learn how to draw better. I tried to tell them that I only draw the things I see in my dreams, but I don't think they really believed me. Mother says the pictures are no good, but I think she's wrong. The voice in my dream says I could draw better, but that I must get away from here. I want to leave this house as soon as I can. Mr. Matthews says there's a contest coming up in Pittsburgh. The winning entrant will be given an art scholarship to Boston University. I'm already starting on a picture. I think I will win. June 30th, 1917. The voice came again last night while I was dreaming. It told me that if I would listen to it and do as it says, that I will have everything I ever wanted out of life. For the first time I opened my eyes and then I saw the voice and what it was. It was blurry so I couldn't see much, but I know that it's awfully big. It showed me something I could draw for the contest and told me if I did a good job I couldn't help but win. I think the voice really wants me to win and go to Boston. I hope it happens. I can't stand my mother much longer. I swear, she makes me so mad that sometimes I think I'll kill her. Buck and Vera, please make send checks for me. is a fail. So Buck, you lose 1d3, and Vera loses one point of sanity. That's, uh... Yeah, I know, that, that, that tracks, gotta say. Would you believe me if I said this wasn't the strangest thing I've read lately? <laughs> you talked about a monster in the car, honey. You turn your attention. Oh, so you're starting to believe me, are you? You turn your sure. attention to the leather-bound blue book. Flip it open, and there's a title there on the first page: "Scriptures of the Riven Valley." It appears to be some sort of anthropological study written by someone called Flan O'Leary. It's published in 1902. Vera, go ahead and make an own language check to read this particularly dense text. This should be fine. Yeah, it's a pass. Yeah, you'll definitely be good at this. I've got an 80 in our own language. 
You skim the book, highlighting several passages of note, pointing them out to buck with your finger. Passages from scriptures of the Riven Valley. Many stories of the area seem to have their basis in old Indian legends regarding a being that dwelt somewhere in the shadow land of the hills. This god could contact those it wanted through their dreams and command them. Often, those who would dream of this would end up being driven mad. These unfortunates would end up being expelled from their tribes and forced into the wilderness to make their way on their own. The area was taboo to the tribes of the area, but occasionally one seeking wisdom or knowledge would, regardless of the risks, sleep in these dark and forbidding hills. An old woman told me a story about a neighbour who once, after suffering a particularly terrible series of nightmares, slew his entire family with an axe before hanging himself in his woodshed. The old woman told me that the man had always been a good husband and father, but apparently lost his mind. She remembers her uncle telling her that old Martin Garcetti was a good man until they moved out of town and into the new house he'd built for his family on the slopes of the mountain. This house was built in an area shunned by the local Indians. The house still stands and is presently occupied by other members of the same family, although none of them seem to have been afflicted by any form of madness. The Gunderson party was among the first whites to make a home for themselves in the area and, despite the warnings of local Indians, built their first rude settlements among those hills the Indians so assiduously avoided. Although the early settlement seemed to prosper for the first year, it was not long before tragedy stuck. Apparently during the long winter, one of the settlers lost his mind. When they were discovered by visitors from nearby Pittsburgh, all the miners and their families were dead, apparently killed by wolves, their faces terribly bitten and chewed. Only one man's death was caused by other means. A single bullet wound to the forehead, an obvious suicide. Oddly enough, the marauding wolves did not see fit to ravage this body, as they had the others. Uh, this mean anything to you? Yeah, I think we uh, saw a repeat of this uh, in those photos that uh, Devlin showed us. Uh-huh. And you hadn't read this or anything like this before? Nope, it's news to me. And of course the name Garcetti is mentioned in the text. A Martin Garcetti. Perhaps an ancestor of Josephine's. Well, there's certainly something going on here at the very least. Uh... Alright. Fist um... raps on the metal door. Hey, hey, you guys done in there? Yeah, we're just, just coming out now. Vera, go ahead, make a photography check for me. That's a uh, critical. Critical. You hold the book open at various points, snapping pictures of the pages. Click, 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 and do the same thing for the diary. Just as you take a photo of the final page, Buck slams the book shut and you lower the camera. And then you see it again. 
An extremely tall figure silhouetted at the back of the evidence room, standing at the very end of the shelves. You reach out to grab Buck's shoulder, but once again, the figure is gone in an instant. Please make a send check, Vera. Rapidly chipping into it. Oh, Buck, I've rolled a hundred. Uh, that's not a pass. That's a, if that's a pass, you lose one. If it's not a pass, it's three. Yeah, that, I rolled a hundred. So. Yeah. yeah, so three. <laughs> Buck already lost six. That's nice. Buck, as Vera lowers her camera, you see her face is pale, shocked. You feeling all right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Let's, let's get out of here. We're, we're done here, right? I mean, if you say we're done here, I think we're done here. I think our detective says we're done here. You grab right. Vera. We're done here. We're done here. You grab Vera by the arm, turn her around and steer her towards the door. As Detective Devlin escorts you back towards the entrance of the precinct, I'd like the two of you to make spot hidden checks, please. Okay, I rolled an 88, so it's not a pass, and I won't bother pushing it. That's fine. Buck? Yeah, it's fail for me too. Fail. As you are escorted through the office and back out to the lobby, both of you fail to notice another detective looking up from a desk, a couple of feet away from Detective Devlin's. He reaches up, scratches the stubble on his face and smiles as he watches you leave. Now I'd like you to both make listen checks, please. What the hell are these rolls? Uh, I'll roll again. Yeah, you should be good at listen, you're a journalist. Um, it's 50-50 for that, let me see. Uh, oh, syntax, please, I'm begging you. Uh, oh, it's a fail still. Fail? Hard pass. Hard pass. Well... Obviously, Vera's still shaken, but Buck, as you step through the doorway out into the lobby, you see two police officers at a nearby desk lean in and start to talk. Uh, you're ready to pay a visit to us. Pay a visit to the speakeasy later. Yeah, 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 I know, I know. Down at the docks, right, right. But... Zeke the Geek's been, uh, staying out of trouble. I'm not sure we need to, uh, you know, it's just a formality at this point. And besides, we keep him out of trouble. He greases our palms. You know how it is. You step out back into the waiting room. And you now know where to find the speakeasy. It's down at the docks. Say the Sailor's Club. But you don't have to head right there. Detective Devlin did say that the Boston Globe reported on the raid of the cult, but you did also find compelling evidence in the police station, so it's up to you if you think it's necessary to still check that out. There's probably not a lot you can learn from a newspaper article after what you've learned here. Okay. 
depends on how much time there is. You look at the clock day. up on the wall. It's just after 3.30. I'll be cutting it a bit close, I think. Speakeasy should be open within the next hour and a half. We should have time then. Sure, sure. What do you say? We head over to the Globe and uh, get ourselves a reprint? Sounds good to me. <laughs> She's in her element. Step out of the police station, back into the windy streets. And we cross to Angel. Angel, you and Trixie step up, or step up to the entryway of the Museum of Fine Arts on Huntington Avenue. This neoclassical building is flanked with four Roman-esque marble pillars. There are three sets of double glass doors welcoming you and a big colourful sign on a sandwich board on the front step reading, New Exhibit! The wonders of ancient Egypt, the tomb of King Tut. Trixie looks at this and she smiles and she says, Oh, right, yes, I, ah, I forgot that they had that ex plans, that exhibit, to open the week after I left for my sabbatical. Well, after you, she says, gesturing towards the door. And then Angel... You step forwards, step through the glass doors into the museum itself. And this museum is a wonder to behold. The nucleus of its collection is concentrated in the area just beyond the, just beyond the lobby, a collection of works formerly found in the Boston Athenium, at least according to the big sign hanging on the wall. Aside from the paintings, the museum is decorated with a large number of statues, busts, casts, a very noble selection of tapestries, a fine collection of oriental pieces, and an extensive collection of ceramics and metalwork. Take a King few. Tut. King Tut. More like King Fucked. Trixie looks over at you. She raises an eyebrow and she says, "I don't suppose you believe in the curse that they say is placed on his tomb." She says, "Well, we should uh, we should ask the curator if she's heard of this Garcetti or if she's." Knows anything about Andrew Keedling? Uh, that should be through here. Trixie leads you down a corridor leading from the lobby. You walk past a line of perfectly detailed statues depicting a wide variety of mythical creatures. A unicorn, a chimera, a gargoyle. Each statue growing progressively more sinister, and the very last one, a tall, thin man in a long overcoat, 
the devil's face under his wide-brimmed hat seems almost alive watching you as you stroll past, your footfalls echoing on the polished tiles. You step into the reception area of the museum. There's a short, thin man with silver spectacles leaning over the counter. He's currently poring through a guest registry, but he looks up as you approach. Oh! Oh! Miss Fallowfew, you're back already! No, no, says Trixie, holding out her hand. I still have a bit of my vacation left. I'm just uh, handling a favour for a friend, and hopefully I'll be over and done with it soon so I can get back to the wild and back to nature. Oh, uh, this is uh, Angel. Uh, She's a a friend of mine, she says, introducing you. You notice, Angel, that she does not introduce you by your full name. Jeez, darling, not even gonna use my full name here, are we? The man raises an... Yes. The man raises an eyebrow and he says, "Uh, Angel, uh, nice to meet you. My name's Eustace. Eustace Connolly. And, uh, I'm sorry. Angel... uh, Trixie seems to have made... Rather a big deal of your last name. I, I'm sorry. Do you happen to be someone I, sh- I should have heard of? My name is Angel Christ. Uh, or the vessel for God. And Jesus Christ, I guess. But they, you know. Christ, he says. He looks over at Trixie and he says... And I suppose you're friends with her because she has some things that would make a lovely addition to that exhibit you keep bugging Miss Demort about. Right? Trixie smiles and says, Oh, you could say so. Trixie's a little eccentric, but... Well, she's, she's a, a lovely girl. Darling, you mixed her names up again. No. Oh. Sorry, it seems to be rubbing off on me. Angel's a bit eccentric, but she means well. Eustace nods. He crosses his hands, and he says, Okay, Miss Angel Christ. Uh, Welcome to our fine museum. We've got a lot on display. I'm sure you'll find something to pique your interest, uh, unless there is something in... in in particular that uh, you're after. Um, we're looking for somebody. I think. I don't know. I've been on drugs. Uh, Andrew Keatling, says Trixie. Andrew Keatling. Apparently he donates uh, money here once a month. Uh, Quite well known in the artist circles. Oh, oh, says Eugene. Oh, well, you, you'll have to speak to Miss Demort about that. She's the curator of the paintings. Uh, uh, she'll probably know who you're talking about, but... Uh, well, she's rather busy today, and... Uh, I'm remiss to let you in without an appointment. Uh, perhaps you might like to come back tomorrow. Busy, schmizzy. 
<laughs> I would like you, Angel, to please make a fast talk check, if you have it. Fast talk. Uh, don't. Uh, you may go ahead and make an appearance check instead. Or you may make an occult check. Oh, fuck that. No, I'm doing occult all the time. Oh, that's a success. Busy schmizzy, you say airily. You reach down the hem of your t-shirt, clutching the amulet you wear, hidden to everyone else. And you say, Well, I see you've brought King Tut into the museum, and I might just... Let the curse run its course if you don't let me see the curator. Eugene. Yes. Eugene blinks once, twice, puzzled. Uh, okay then, uh. He looks over at Trixie and he sighs and he says, Okay, you can go in and see her. I'll let her know you're on your way, but you owe me, okay? Trixie nods and winks. She says, as soon as I'm back from my sabbatical. Come along, Angel, she says. She... Oh, wait, I want to talk to this man. She stops, turns around and frowns. Eugene smiles and he says, eh, Yes, Miss Angel, you have more questions? No, I just wanted to tell you you're an idiot. You only think there's a curse here. Of course. Uh, it used to be an acting. He says, okay, rolls his eyes, looks over at Trixie, and he says, You owe me three favours. She laughs as she leads you away from the reception hall, down the hallway to the office of the curator. There's a nameplate on the door, Madeleine du Mort. Trixie doesn't knock. She just grabs the knob, pushes the door open, and Miss DeMort looks up from her desk where she's running over an inventory of recently purchased art pieces. She's an attractive woman of medium height. She has red hair and is dressed in a conservative but stylish manner. Her desk is littered with photographs of paintings, gallery schedules, pen nibs, small objects of art, and several art magazines. Miss Fellow Few, I wasn't expecting you back for another several weeks. Eugene's just called ahead. Apparently, your friend here has some extremely pressing business that needs to be conducted now, when I'm in the middle of uh, working out the budget for the new exhibit. She taps the little white rotary phone on the desk in front of her and she says, Well, of course, he only needed to dial my number as you made your way here. She says, I... Holds out her hand, says, Madeline Dumort, uh, Angel, I presume? Your friend doesn't seem to be quite with it, she says, looking up at Trixie. Trixie rolls her eyes and says, oh, Well, throw the 
You throw the cocaine at her, it hits her in the face, drops down, lands on her lap, and she just looks at you, her lip pursed, and she says, I... Miss Fellow Few, you have ten seconds to explain what you're doing here, or I'm going to call security. You've brought a mad woman into my office. No. She folds her arms. She folds her arms. Yeah, just grabs it off the grabs off the woman's lap, slides it back into her pocket. And Miss Dumort folds her arms. She purses her lips at you and she says, Miss Angel, please explain what you're doing here so we can get it over and done with, or get out. Andrew Keatling, she says, letting the name yeah, hang that, on her that, lips. That, that one. Him. We're looking for him. Trixie leans forwards and she says, Well, he's, uh, he's missing. Been gone for a couple weeks now and... Was last seen with a woman by the name of Josephine Garcetti and I, I was wondering if... Mr. Mort raises a hand, cutting her off. You were wondering if I knew anything. Well... Missing or not, Mr. Keatling is one of the greatest patrons of this museum, particularly of the visual arts, and I will not divulge his personal information willy-nilly. She looks over at Angel, least of all not to a crazy woman. I look at her and I'm like, I'm not crazy, I'm just, I'm broke. And spiritual. I have fucking people talking to me, alright? It's not fun. It's not fun when you have some fucking massive god in your fucking head. He's not cool. He's fucking, 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 fucking. She just shuts and slams the fucking door and just like. Done. Slams the door behind her. I would like you to go ahead and make an intimidate check. Or you may make a psychology check if you have that to see what will really get under her skin. Uh, double O and eight. Hmm, you got an eight, so you passed, passed your intimidate check. I actually hit the intimidation check. You finish rambling and for dramatic effect you slam the door. Miss DuPont lets out a scream. Ah! Well, if it will get this raging mad woman out of here... Trixie looks at you and she says, just, Angel, 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 I know, I know, you're not crazy, just, just, please, take a deep breath. Trixie, I am so fucking done with everyone calling crazy, I, I have heard so much shit in my head, I am withdrawing from cocaine I had earlier, I am, I am everywhere. We know, we know, says Trixie. Trixie coos in a soothing voice and then she turns to Miss Mr. Maud and she says, please just tell us what we need to know and, and you won't see Angel again. Mr. Maud. Oh, I won't come back here again if you just answer my question. Mr. Maud sighs and Mr. Maud sighs and she says, well, <sighs> well, if I'm honest, I'm quite concerned about Andrew. 
I first met him about a year ago while he was visiting the museum. I was... Well, I found him rather attractive. And when I saw him looking with great appreciation at one of my favorite paintings, an impressionist piece by Degas, I uh, knew I had to get close to him. After getting to know one another, at least once a week we would lunch together, then spend the afternoon strolling through the museum. As far as I know, these soirees are the only time Andrew allowed himself away from his work. But a couple of months ago, he began seeing a woman named Josephine Garcetti, local artist who visited the museum. I think he met Josephine one afternoon when she was late for their regular lunch date. I discovered the two of them chatting together in the main gallery. After that, my meetings with Andrew began to taper off. I believe he was spending more and more time with Garcetti, and I later heard that Andrew and Garcetti had taken a frequenting and rather disreputable place known as the Sailors Club. I don't know where such a place is, so don't ask me. I believe Josephine is... She gives a sidelong glance at Angel. I believe she has a drug habit, and that she's drawn Andrew into it. To my knowledge... You do what has your reaction to this, Angel? In any case, that explains why you're so intent on finding her. To my knowledge... In spite of... In spite of... The edge to your words, Mr. Mort just smiles and she says, Well, <laughs> I must say, I, f I admit, I find it amusing at the thought of someone knocking that little girl off her pedestal. Josephine's paintings have never been shown in Boston, despite what Andrew thought about her skill as an artist, and they would never hang in this museum. They are grotesque and frightening. All I can tell you about Josephine is that apparently she studied painting at Boston University, a fact I learned from an artist's resume that she sent here to the museum. She wanted to be our artist-in-residence. I tore the thing up, threw it in the trash straight away, not only did she graduate from Boston University, but she claimed that she was sponsored by a group known as the Sylvan Knight, based in her hometown, a place in Pennsylvania, she thinks for a moment, tapping her chin. Muskrat Rapids, I think. Well, I thought there was something odd about her, so I decided to keep my eye out, and wouldn't you know... I read this in the newspaper a couple of weeks ago. I cut it out of the globe to save it, just in case it ended up being of some use. And it mentioned the same term that was on her resume, a Sylvan Knight. She starts rifling through a pile of papers on her desk and pulls out a clipping of the Boston Globe. She holds it up and hands it to you, and Angel, you reach forward, you snatch it out of her hand, unfold it, and bring it right up to your face to read it. It's dated two weeks ago. The headline is, Kidnapped Victim Dies During Police Raid on a Cult Ceremony. Pitched Gun Battle Ends in Multiple Deaths. Earlier today, proceedings of a secret Boston religious group known as the Sylvan Knight 
were raided by local police. Led by Detective Sergeant Patrick Devlin of the Boston Police Department, the heavily armed force of men surrounded a wooded area several miles north of the city, then closed in. Authorities had been unaware of the cult's existence, but were tipped off to their activities by a former member of the group. When police arrived on the scene, members of the cult were apparently in the process of performing a black magic ritual. This shocking rite apparently was to include the brutal sacrifice of a young girl recently abducted from Boston's Chinatown. The kidnapped victim was unfortunately killed during the course of the raid. According to Officer Devlin, who was himself slightly injured in the battle, 12 cult members were killed, two captured, and one believed escaped. The woman who escaped is thought to have been the leader of the cult, and is still at large. The public is warned that she may be armed and should be considered dangerous. City Councilman Bradford Tibbins has assured the press that accusations of police brutality will be dealt with during the next inquest scheduled for next week. Police have refused to divulge the identity of the deceased and captured cultists pending further investigation. As you fold the... As you fold the clipping up, I'd like you to go ahead and make a Cthulhu Mythos check for me, Angel. A one. As you finish reading the article, you fold it in your fingers and hand it to Trixie. And then you turn around and as you begin to leave Miss Dumort's office, your lips twist into a mischievous smile. No one can see it as your back is turned. But you recognize the signs of your god's involvement. It's a ritual to appease your master in one of his forms, the form known as the One Beyond, the Dweller in the Void. Each sacrifice brings the barriers between his world, the dream world, and our own closer and closer together when enough people have had their blood shed in the name of your lord the barrier will shatter bringing the dweller in the void Yogg-Sothoth into this world permanently I want to cast cloud memory on this uh... yes as you turn around, the woman raises her hand and she says, Now, if there's nothing else, you raise your hand, cutting her off. Her mouth hangs open. I would like you to please go ahead and spend for me. Oh, where is the grimoire? There we go. Spells. Cloud memory. Yes. So that is. Yep. Please go ahead. Roll 1d6. One magic point, and roll 1d2 for your sanity points. Hold on. Uh, what's my other thing? Uh, so, One. One sanity point. You raise your hand, close your eyes, and begin reciting the incantation that you memorized. The woman looks at you, confused. 
Nobody must know the plans of your master. Not until it is time. Not until the very end. You must rip this memory out of her. What do you command her to forget? I command you to forget the speaking with me. The woman's eyes glaze over. She shakes her head. And then she says, Oh, Miss Fellowfew! I wasn't expecting you back from your vacation for another... Trixie holds out a hand, cutting her off. Oh, no, uh, don't mind us. We were just stopping in to uh, see how everyone was. Uh, this is my friend. I'm taking her out hiking today. Uh, have a good day, Miss Dumont. And then she grabs Angel by the arm, turns around, and half pushes you, half walks with you out of the office. What was that in there? What was that in there? She leans in and whispers in your ear. <laughs> Magic, my dear friend. It's, it's interesting. Magic? Oh, you Remember didn't. That dimensional shambler thing. Yeah, that's similar, but it's uh, more like a memory erase. Angel, I'm keeping my eye on you, says Trixie. Come on. Hey, she's being a pain in the arse. Let's get back to Sant. Let, let's. Let's find a taxi and get back to Sanford's bookstore and wait for the others. Alright, alright. We cross back to Buck and Vera. Buck and Vera, you've just pulled out of the parking lot of the police station. The Boston Globe is all the way in downtown. It's about 20 minutes to half an hour from here. And... Although you have no way of knowing as a character, I will tell you that Angel managed to get the only clue that's at the Boston Globe. And so, as you look, as you peer down at your street map and plot a route to the Boston Globe, you start to feel the sense that maybe, maybe it would be best to just not risk running out of time, to meet with the others and discuss how to handle this speakeasy. Yeah, I don't know about you, but it's getting late in the day. I, uh, I don't think this is worth it. Plus, I, uh, I got a really bad feeling about Angel. I look good. Yeah, you're not there yet. You will be. <laughs> I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she can hear it on the other side of town. Her ears just perk, perk up. <gasps> Someone's talking about me. <laughs> and so, you make your way back to Sandor's secondhand bookstore instead, just in time to see a taxi, a yellow cab pulling up on the curb in front. The back door opens and Trixie climbs out, followed by Angel. You notice that as they make their way towards the entrance of the bookstore, Trixie seems to have her arm wrapped around Angel's, and she's sort of pushing her along the way a mother would a child that they're trying to keep out of trouble. Buck, you exchange a knowing glance with Vera and park the car and then join the others inside the bookstore. You meet them in the back room where they're standing around the table with the map of Boston. 
Sandor isn't present. He's in the stock room in the back, sorting through a new shipment of books. But as he hears you step into the room, he calls out, Investigation's going well, I hope! Trixie looks up as Angel just sits on the floor. She sits at Trixie's feet. Yeah, Vera, Vera looks to Trixie. Yep. Vera looks to Trixie with just like a befuddled, inquisitive look. We had plenty of success. Uh, can I assume that you had at least some? Oh, it went pretty swell. I got to practice some magic at least, but like, I need more drum. She just takes another step. She's like, Trixie just nods and she says that despite Angel's current state, yes, we found some information. It might be might be useful. She recounts everything that Miss DuPont told Angel and Trixie, as well as the contents of the newspaper article. Angel, do you reveal to the group the the realization that occurred to you in the office? something wrong here. It's definitely influenced by some entity. So Angel dances over the facts, but she reveals enough to make you understand that these appear to be ritual sacrifices done in the name of some entity, and that if enough of them are conducted, that entity will be able to do something. Whatever it is, is surely bad for the people of Boston. And that she's almost certain that Andrew Keatling is to be the next sacrifice. Uh, I'm sorry, why do, why do you know all this? How do you know this? Pulls out her cards and she's just like, I speak with them. <laughs> the, uh, the spirits? So you don't have any evidence about this or anything? Not on me. Right. Look, lass, I'm on fucking drugs here. Uh, have fun. Whoa, says Trixie. A language angel. I don't know what they did to you in that hospital, but... I'm starting to. Trixie. Quote unquote, correct me for all the things that I did. And yeah, it doesn't really fucking work. Honestly, I spoke to most of the people in there, and they're pretty much followers just like me, whatever entity is out there. Trixie frowns and shakes her head, and she says, Well, well, let's just focus on the task at hand, and maybe. Maybe we can. Maybe we can help Angel find what she needs later. She turns to Buck and Vera, and she says, "So, Andrew Keatling is in danger. He he's going to be sacrificed, and it looks like Josephine Garcetti 
is going to be the one to do it. She's associated with this group known as the Sylvan Knight. The same group that the police broke up. They're probably an offshoot of the Chapel of Contemplation, if I had to guess. But Josephine's gone missing, and nobody knows where she is. And if we don't know where she is, then we're not going to be able to save Andrew in time. Trixie frowns. Vera? Buck? Do you have any leads, maybe? There's gotta be some trail we can pick up. Uh, Buck is clenching and unclenching his fists, trying to keep his cool. Yeah, we we came across some leads. Uh, there's a speakeasy down on the docks that uh, may lead to something, I don't know. Least we can do is go down, show, uh, flash that picture of Andrew, and uh, see what we can kind of rustle from the trees. Oh, like the Sailors Club, like in the note that we found. Yep, the very one. And you know where it is? Sure do. Okay. Would says, like a drink? I'm she looks down at looks down at Angel, and she says, "Well, we can get a drink when we're there." In fact, we might have to. We might be spending the rest of the night there asking questions. She looks over at Buck and she's... <laughs> In time, she says. She looks over at Buck. And she says... Well, it's a quarter to five now. It'll be dark within the hour and Speakeasy should be opening up. It's on the... The docks are on the other side of the city. It's going to take... At least half an hour to get there, so... If you don't have any other ideas, I think we should leave now. If, if you think we're ready. Sundown seems to be like perfect time to open the door of a speakeasy. I agree, says Trixie. She looks over at Vera and she says, I can see your pretty dress on underneath that jacket and... Well, it looks like a... If I had to have a guess, that this wouldn't be your first time out on the town. I'll, I'll fit in a fine. There are plenty of sailors around, but uh, don't worry, I won't let him bite. <laughs> Neither will I. Okay, says Trixie. Well, uh, you head on out, get the car ready. I'm going to tell Sandor where we're going and uh, make sure Angel's ready. Come on now, she says, speaking to Angel like a mother speaking to a child. She kneels down. Let's let's pack up these cards and. <laughs> I would like Angel to go ahead and make an occult check, but. Yes, but I'll make you do an occult check because you never know. You are like close enough to actual. Supernatural things, you might see a glimpse of something. Meanwhile... Uh, that's a, a nine? A nine. Alright, that's a critical. So, as you start to gather up the cards and slide them back into the deck box, an image flashes into your mind. At first you think it's a man. A man walking down an asphalt highway towards you. 
nothing more than a silhouette in the red, bright, crimson cum, sun, cum, sunset. Cum set. And... But then, as he steps closer and his face is illuminated in the fading light, you realise he's not a man at all. Where his face should be are the mandibles of an insect. Long fangs, chittering, shining in the light. That's your vision. Please make a sand check. You may make it with advantage because of your cocaine habit. It's a success. That is a sand loss of one. You sigh. I look at Trixie and I'm like, um, bugs, 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 mandibles, mandibles. Uh, bugs? She says, we'll have to be on the lookout. And then sighing. Highway, man, bug like, mandibles. She frowns as she looks down at you. I... She bites her lip. I'm sure we'll be okay. And then she helps you to your feet, leads you out of the second-hand bookstore to the car in the parking lot. Buck, Vera, are you ready? Is there anything you'd like to do before heading to the speakeasy? No, I think I'm good. You're good? good. Very well. So Buck, you're already sitting in the car, got your hand on the key, when the back door opens and Trixie shoves Angel in, then climbs in after her. Angel's rocking back and forth, muttering to herself, and this already sets you on edge, Buck. You feel your hand unconsciously lowering down the side of your torso to your holster, even as the other hand remains on the key. Trixie quickly recounts the vision that Angel experienced. She says, Angel's seen things and they've been true before, but... Well, I just thought I'd let you know. Next time I trust a word out of her mouth will be the last thing I ever do. Then you turn the key in the ignition. The engine roars to life and you scream off down the street as the sky above starts to be tinted red as the sun goes down. Okay, I'd like someone to make a navigate check and Buck to make a drive check, please. We'll see... See if you get there right at opening time, or if the club's already swinging when you show up. Angel can't navigate No, she definitely can't. I think Trixie can, she's though. So Trixie got a pass on her navigate check. She quickly traces a route through downtown on the street map that's folded on the dashboard. Points to the docks where the club would be. Which means, Buck, you may make a drive check with advantage. Oh, uh, I failed the advantage. Can I push that? Yeah, and it's still at advantage even if you push it. Uh, there we go. That's a success. Success. So with the route that Trixie points out, the trip is 
uneventful. It takes you through downtown Boston, but at this time in the evening, all of the businesses are starting to close. The banks are definitely shut, as are the stockbrokers, and the only people on the streets are people who are finishing up work for the day or heading home after conducting their daily business. The sun is well and truly set by the time you emerge on the other side of the city in the harbour district. The inky black expanse of the Atlantic Ocean stretching out before you seemingly forever. You see warehouses and shipping yards on the water's edge and this is apparently where the speakeasy is. You can see some people milling about here and there, nothing more than silhouettes in the street lights. But there doesn't appear to be anywhere to park the car on the shore's edge. So instead, you pilot the car into a small parking lot beside a general store, turn the engine off, and then the four of you decide to walk the rest of the way to the speakeasy on foot. And as you do, I'd like everyone to make a spot hidden check, please. Yep. That's a, uh, a pass from Buck. Pass from Buck. Okay, you can just take that then, that's fine. Yep. Alright, Severa. Oh, Angel. Pass fail for Angel. Fail. And Vera? Uh, I fail. I'm worried about I, I got yep. two up, but I want okay, to so spin Buck, as, as you lead the group down this empty street and the shadows of the buildings grow longer, sneaking like tendrils out of the alleyways and side streets. You catch a flicker of movement out of the corner of your right eye and become aware that something's following you. You whirl around and you see standing at the street corner, a block behind you, Silhouetted in the yellow glow of the street light. A tall, dark figure. Whoever they are, they're wearing a long overcoat and a wide-brimmed hat. Fail, by the way. Yep. Yeah, sorry, my mic died. That's okay. But Buck saw it, so Buck, you can, you can make everyone else aware if you like. just going to bring over Vera and uh, ask if that's potentially what she has seen. Vera, seeing everyone stop, Buck motions for you to come over to him, and then he just jerks his chin down the street. You follow his gaze, and there, Vera, there you see him, the same figure who's been trailing you all day, appearing out of the corner of your eye, and then disappearing. He's standing there, seemingly real this time, and Buck can see him. So, uh, can I... Tell me that ain't what you saw earlier. 
I can see see him now. Or... Yeah, you can see him now. You can see him now that Buck's pointed it out. And Angel, noticing that the other two have turned around, you stop and turn too, and you hear Trixie gasp beside you and whisper, "Who is that?" As she sees the man standing on the corner. Uh, excuse me, sir. The figure doesn't respond. In fact, it doesn't even seem to move. Oh, I, uh, I just want to talk to you for a second. Vera, I'd like you to make an intelligence check for me, please. You got it. Um, no, critical. Critical. As you call out to the figure, you narrow your eyes, squinting at him. He's a block away, half in shadow, half in light. You don't know how long he's been following you, as he didn't seem to make a noise. It's almost as if he was moving silently. If Buck hadn't caught that flicker of movement, you wouldn't have even noticed he was following you at all. The brim of his hat casts a deep shadow over his face, obscuring it. He wears a black suit with an expensive-looking overcoat over it. And as you squint even more, try to see what you can make out under the brim of his hat. You notice that the angle of his shoulders, the angle of his chin and neck, the way he holds himself, seems to vaguely resemble the photograph of Andrew Keatling that was given to you by Sarah. Even the clothing he wears is similar. The picture of Andrew Keatling in your hand, wearing a suit and an overcoat. Only the hat is different. So he didn't respond? He did not respond. Okay, hesitantly, like, Vera's going to just reach for her camera and try to take a photo? Sure. Go ahead and make a photography check. Um, pushing it. Pass. Pass. Carefully, you fumble for your camera, lift it up, bring it to your eye, fix the figure directly in the middle of the viewfinder, and then you click. The bulb flashes, and you're sure you've caught the figure right in the middle of the photograph. As soon as he sees the flash, he moves with blinding speed, silently, as if he's nothing more than a shadow gliding across the ground into the darkness of a nearby alleyway. Oh, oh, uh... Seeing him move so incredibly fast, so without warning, prompts everyone to make a sand check, please. Pass. Angel. Success. So, Angel and Vera, you lose one sand point. Buck, for failing, you lose 1d6. Uh, that's three more. Down the drain. Three more. Buck, seeing it... Yeah, one, was it? Yep, one. 
seeing the figure glide away, run into the darkness of the side street, you're suddenly possessed by an unshakable urge to chase them down. Before you know what you're doing, you're running ahead, your hand on the holster of your weapon, sprinting towards the alleyway that the figure disappeared into. Angel, Vera, seeing Buck suddenly run ahead, do you follow him? Absolutely. Yeah, Vera definitely wants to know what this is. Angel? Yeah, but are you curious enough to follow them? No. So Angel just stands in the street. She whispers, I already know what that is, and laughs. Trixie, though. Trixie can't fight the curiosity. She runs ahead, chasing after Buck and Vera. Buck, you round the corner, drawing your gun as Vera and Trixie come running up behind you, you find the figure trapped, cowering before a brick wall at the end of this narrow corridor, fenced in by a trash can and a stack of wooden crates. Even as it cowers, it remains absolutely silent and stands relatively still, its unseen face watching, staring at you. What would you like to do, Buck? Um, Buck's gonna reach out a hand, just like, um, kind of, uh, palm up, in like a, like the kind of way you would to, like, a stray dog or something that seems to be scared. So you hold out your hand. Say, say his name. So you hold out your hand and speak the name. Andrew. Andrew Keatling. The figure twitches. You hear a strange shuffling noise. Not of feet moving. More of a bestial... Guttural noise. <laughs> As the figure takes a single step forwards, its gaze, hidden under the brim of its hat, does not move. A voice, whispering, hangs on the air. In the dark. Thinking of kisses, thinking of death. What do you do, Buck? Oh, Buck isn't really sure how to respond to this. After, uh, he just, uh, kind yep. of reiterates, um, Hey, uh, Andrew, uh, are you still in there? There is silence for a moment. And then the voice returns. Keatling wants your help. The one in the void wants your soul. I know not what I want. 
And then, after it finishes talking, it thrusts out a hand and beckons you with a single finger shrouded in shadow, beckons for you to come closer. keeps his distance uh, being wary of all the things that have happened in the past and getting a little bit too close to things like this uh, Buck, I suggest shooting him <laughs> yeah that's probably a good idea but Vera seeing, hearing this thing talk seeing him beckon this thing that could be Andrew claims to be Andrew you find yourself possessed with strange curiosity to know more you feel the urge to approach the figure building within you what do you do i'm i'm i want to know what's going on vera as buck silently protests and as Trixie watches, you step forward, step towards the figure. He keeps beckoning you. Finally, you stand in front of him. You're face to face with him, though you cannot see anything still under the brim of that hat. That rustling, death rattle sound continues to emanate from underneath the hat. <laughs> Almost without your input, you feel your hand reaching forwards. You grab the brim of the hat with your fingers and slowly remove the hat from the figure's head. Vera, go ahead and make a sand check for me, please. Pass. Pass. With a pass, that will be 1d6. Oh, <laughs> that's fair enough. Um, 1d6. 6. 6. Down to 37. <laughs> Underneath the hat is a wickedly smiling devil's face with whiskered, rubbery, grey flesh and smoky, lambent pits for eyes. In a split second, you realise that its facial features are a distorted travesty of Andrew Keatling's face. As soon as the creature's face is revealed, it smiles, bearing two rows of teeth sharpened to almost perfect arrow points. It giggles insanely, snatches back its hat, out of your trembling hand and then lashes out at you with its left hand which you now realize is not a hand at all but rather a lump of flesh with five large bony barbs sticking out of the grayish skin I'm going to roll to see if he hits you. Uh, would it be 
acceptable for Buck to have been absolutely training his gun yep. ready for that potential outcome? Yep, so Buck, you, as soon as you see it lash out, you may go ahead and fire your gun if you like. That was the intention? Yep. So go ahead and I'll see who gets off first, depending on the degree of success. Hard pass. Okay, so that's a hard pass. He lashes out with his barbed lump of flesh that passes for his hand, and Vera is frozen to the spot. Seems like she's completely unable to move. You call out her name, and seeing no reaction, you raise your gun, train it on the creature, and fire. Bang! The bullet slams straight into the creature's centre of mass. It lets out a great hiss as it turns away. In a single motion, it pulls the wide-brimmed hat firm over its head once again and then turns and ducks away into the shadow before the brick wall. You run forwards, holding your gun out, ready to, ready to shoot it again. There's nowhere it can go. The brick wall is a dead end, and yet, as you run to Vera's side, your gun held ready in front of you, the creature is gone, seemingly vanished into thin air. Uh, Buck extends a hand to Vera. You look to, over it. Um, help her up off the ground, and um, you look over at Vera. Expresses that. Um, yeah, uh, look, but definitely don't touch. Uh, oh, okay. I, I see what you guys are talking about now. I, you, yeah. No touching. Vera, you. you are temporarily insane. At <laughs> least. True, I would be. Yeah, but that's, I mean... You don't. Ha you're role playing it fine. I'm just saying mechanically, you are temporarily insane, which means for at least the next session, you're going to be plagued by some rather unsettling experiences, and any future sand checks you make while temporarily insane will be done with disadvantage, and so. As you look back at Buck, your lip trembling, and you say, No, no, no. No touching. No, no. I see now. I see now. No touching. Your right hand trembles. Your camera still grasped in your hand, the plastic rattling. As you slowly lower it. And then without waiting for Buck to say anything else, you turn around and calmly, quietly begin striding back towards the entrance of the alleyway. As you emerge from the alleyway onto the main street, you see angels staring there, framed in the light of the street light. As she sees you, she smiles. I knew what it was. 
I knew what it was. And you didn't listen. And that's where we'll conclude this session. That concludes part one of Mansion of Madness. Next session. Yeah. Next session. Provided that Vera can recover from this terrible, terrible thing she just experienced. You'll make your way down to the Sailors Club. Step into the speakeasy. And see if you can pick up Josephine Garcetti's trail. But I will warn you. This is where things start to get weird. Vera has had her first experience of the unnatural. And she'll remain temporarily insane for the next session at least. She'll be seeing some things that... The rest of you can't comprehend. But besides that, as you pick up Josephine Garcetti's trail, you'll be lured at long last out of Boston to the birthplace of the Chapel of Contemplation, the small, sleepy town of Muskrat Rapids, where everyone seems to exist on the periphery between the real world and the world of dreams. Thank you, everyone. And make sure you join us next fortnight for part two of our epic finale. 